Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. If the Colorado River stopped flowing, the water in its reservoirs might hold out for three or four years. Then it would be necessary to abandon most of Southern California and Arizona and much of Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, and of course, Utah. For the entire American Southwest, the Colorado is the river of life, which makes it all the more tragic and ironic that by the time it approaches its final destination, it's been reduced to a shadow upon the sand, a toxic trickle. In his book, River Notes, A Natural and Human History of the Colorado, Wade Davis says that the story of the Colorado River is the human quest for progress and its inevitable, if unintended, effects, and an opportunity to learn from past mistakes and foster the rebirth of America's most iconic water bay. Wade Davis is a native of British Columbia, licensed river guide. He's worked as a park ranger, forestry engineer, has conducted ethnographic fieldwork among several indigenous societies, He's an ethnographer, writer, photographer, filmmaker, and an explorer in residence with National Geographic Society. He holds degrees in anthropology and biology, received a Ph.D. in ethnobotany, all from Harvard University. And he's the author of 15 books, including the international bestseller Serpent and the Rainbow. And he'll be in Utah for the Ogden School Association's Fall Author Event. That's on Thursday at the Ogden Eccles Conference Center. Wade Davis, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. We appreciate you uh, being with us, I believe, from Vancouver at this point. That's right. Uh, you spend some of your time in Vancouver, uh, although you live, I believe, in, what is it, northern British Columbia? Well, I, I go between um, uh, Washington, D.C., where I was based at the National Geographic for many years, and then uh, remained there as an explorer-in-residence, and we have a fishing lodge in northern British Columbia in a place called the Sacred Headwaters in Taltan Native Country, and then, of course, I've also got a place in Vancouver, and so we sort of go back and forth between the different places. Yeah, a very eclectic background, very interesting. Um, and uh, we turn to your book, uh, River Notes. Uh, very interesting. Uh, how did this come about? This, this was, uh, I mean, uh, I believe you took a trip down the Colorado for this book. Right. The, the genesis of it really was an IMAX film project put together by a really a visionary filmmaker, Greg McGilvery, um, from Southern California. And he's probably the most successful IMAX maker um, in the history of the genre. He's also a wonderful guy and a really dedicated conservationist. And so originally he had a plan to really take a journey down the Colorado as a way of drawing attention to the overall issue of fresh water, both in North America and around the world. But sort of the, the ultimate crisis, really, if you think about it, because for all the talk of energy and oil, um, oil, at least as a um, theoretically, even on a long geological timeline, is a renewable resource in some sense. Um, Water is not. I mean, the water that we drink today is the same water that was drunk by the dinosaurs. It's what we have is what we've got. And so he wanted to tell a story of what is clearly looming freshwater crisis around the world um, through the kind of metaphor of the iconic American River, the Nile of the, the American Nile, if you will. And so originally it was going to be a story of Bobby Kennedy um, and a scientist going down, but Bobby wanted to uh, bring his daughter along. And so I remember Greg asking me if I had a couple of daughters, and I said, I do, but they're both in school. And uh, But then he, he heard one of my, my daughters who sing, and he invited her along to be part of the film. And so it became a sort of a story of fathers and daughters going down the river, speaking about conservation, but other issues as well, on the eve of those two daughters going off to university. And the Colorado is, of, uh, of course, a, a very good place to explore some of these issues. Uh, it's the most regulated river drainage, and of course, as we all know, west of the 100th meridian, 
Uh, things get pretty dry, and yet Colorado supplies water and electricity to some 25 million people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's really useful, and this is sort of what I did is when I, you know, I, I when I made that film, they asked me to do um, the text for a photo book that would accompany the film, and uh, I, I kind of jumped into the literature and and found on the one hand that there was a sort of surprising dearth of books on the Grand Canyon, believe it or not. I mean, there are a great number of photo books, and there are a great number of guide books, and there are sort of a great number of sort of self-help books, but there was a very uh, few um, publications that sort of dealt with the canyon as a whole, um, its geology, its history, uh, its natural history, its um, uh, First Nation or indigenous ex- um, um, uh, cultures, its the impact of the Mormon um, people on the o- overall development of water policy in the American West. And so that's really why I decided to write the little book, River Notes, to try to give people a sort of a something you could throw into your backpack almost or throw into your dry bag um, that would tell you everything um, you really wanted to know, if you will, about the, the river. And I think we have to step step back because one of the great books that was written, um, of course, was Wallace Stegner's classic, Beyond the 100th Meridian. And the point that um, Stegner, one of our great American writers, makes is that, you know, there's one cardinal kind of fact in American geography, and that is that is the reality that west of the 100th Meridian, which is a line of longitude that essentially goes from Winnipeg south through the Great Plains to Abilene, Texas, and then into the coast, um, there is no place south of the Canadian border, north of the Mexican border, and east of the Sierra Nevada gets, that gets more than 20 inches a year. And it originally was known as the Great American Desert, but deserts imply austerity. And as you well know, Americans, in all their wonder, don't do austerity very well. So as the frontier expanded westward, the nomenclature, the naming of the place changed, but the ecology remained fundamentally the same. So suddenly we weren't speaking about a desert, we were speaking about Painted Butte or Grand Forks or Monument Valley. But the reality is that the ecology remained the same. And as the frontier expanded, uh, it became in the interest of railroad builders and the overall thrust of the American dream of the West to to suggest that this great American desert, which was was actually not only habitable, but um, but you could farm there, and it even was um, suggested with a kind of the rigor of scientific orthodoxy that the reason there was no rain west of that line of longitude is that the soil hadn't been turned over. In other words, the idea was that if you simply put a spade into the desert sand and turned it over, somehow the clouds would magically appear. And although that seems preposterous to us um, today, everything about the American frontier at that point invoked hyperbole and invited cliché. But once it became clear that, indeed, the rain would not come when you turned over the soil, uh, it became essential to bring the rain to the soil. And that's what really sparked what became this massive transformation of the American West to the extent that there's really only one uh, river anywhere west of the 100th Meridian that flows for more than 1,000 kilometers uncompromised by dams. And one of the things that is so fascinating about it from a perspective of Utah is that that great western expansion, of course, was led by that remarkable, even visionary people, um, the, the forefathers of the, the Mormon people today, and 
Mormonism is is a you know a fascinating religion for so many reasons, but one of them that is that it was just one of the many sort of religious movements that sort of flared on the American frontier in the 19th century. It was based on new ideas, big ideas, and those ideas, of course, were threatening to some people. And so, as is well known from the history, the Mormon people suffered persecution wherever they went, and and the West became a kind of a symbol of the possibilities of not only an escape from that um, that persecution, but also of, a po- of the possibility of est- establishing literally a new Zion. And so when, you know, people often ask, particularly non-Mormons, why was it that this great hegira, this great diaspora, stopped in the Salt Lake Valley, as opposed to, for example, continuing west to the fertile soils of the Willamette Valley uh, of, uh, of Oregon, or perhaps to California in the Central Valley, in a certain sense, I've always thought that it was it was the perfect place for the for the migration to stop, as, because as Brigham Young sort of essentially said, as he looked back down upon that salt plain, if we can make this place green, um, we really will have been the chosen people in some sense, and and so in a way, the settlement of Salt Lake Valley and the successful transformation of it to an agrarian economy in many ways became the perfect coefficient for all the persecution and suffering that the Mormons had, uh, had um, experienced um, since the birth of the religion. And so the very success of the Mormons, who were, it's just amazing what they did, you know. They, 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 if you look back, the very day they settled um, and stopped moving west, they established a committee. Uh, within hours, that committee had a portion of land. Within hours, um, the first of the creeks were being diverted. Um, ground had been laid out. Potatoes had been planted within 24 hours. It's just sort of an amazing example of that can-do American attitude. And their very success sparked this bigger dream of the West. You know, within short order, the Mormons had roughly 2 million acres under, um, under irrigation in the Salt Lake Valley. And that kind of reinforced the possibility that these western lands could, in fact, be farmed. And and this, of course, rekindled that great American Jeffersonian ideal of 160 acres um, to the family. But as really innovative people like John Wesley Powell so famously remarked, that notion of 160 acres to the family, which made perfect sense east of the 100th meridian, you know, in the in the in the upland hills of Pennsylvania or in Virginia, made no sense whatsoever out west, because out west the issue wasn't land, it was water. And with proper water, 160 acres might be too much for a family, but without water, 16,000 acres wouldn't ser- can keep a single person alive. And so you had this kind of thrust west into a place where, in fact, agriculture was going to prove to be much more difficult than it than it than it than its promise. And so that's what really began this sort of amazing process of taming the American West. And uh, it's this idea of transformation, right? It's the, the, the Mormons had this, and then this became the dream of the, the, the broader West. It, it's amazing, uh, whether you agree with it or not, it's amazing what did happen. Um, engineering marvels. That, that oh, I mean, absolutely. Up. I mean, I mean, I think you know. One of the things I try very hard to do as a storyteller is I find that polemics are not only not persuasive, they're not very helpful. 
and that I, it, by no means do I abdicate uh, judgment because all of us as human beings are moral, you know, morally and ethically obliged to make proper judgments, but I try to suspend judgments so that the judgments I, I, I'm called upon to make can be kind of informed ones. And one of the things as a historian you really have to be careful doing is judging the past actions of people by standards of today. It's, it's not only unfair, it's not very helpful. And, and the thing that I find so fascinating in that kind of clash of cultures in the American West was that, you know, you had two fundamentally different worldviews. You had, you know, indigenous people from the Havasupai to the Wallape in the canyon to the late-coming Navajo to the Utes to the um, Paiute to um, the Arapaho, wherever uh, the peoples were around the, the canyon, certainly the Hopi, they essentially had an ideology, and that just means an idea system, um, that the world was perfect as it was. And their myths reinforced the idea of a kind of an earthly perfection that um, reflected the, 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 the ultimate aspiration of whoever they deemed the ultimate creator to be. And, and this is so typical of indigenous people, whereby their, their goal is not to change the world, but to keep the world almost as it is, but performing the ritual gestures deemed to be necessary to do so. And whereas, of course, the Mormon people coming out of a, a European tradition, um, their ethos was quite different. It was to transform the world, uh, not only into the image of humanity, uh, but to serve the needs of humanity. And so, for example, in the American West, that original sort of impulse um, became codified and again, we have to remember how recently this was. I mean, don't don't forget that in the lifetime of our own great-grandparents, uh, Buffalo outnumbered people in North America. I mean, as the Mormons moved west, they moved through herds of buffalo in that tall grass prairie, herds that had grazing areas the size of the state of Rhode Island, you know. I mean, herds that would take a single day to go by a single spot on the earth. And so this, this was, a, you know, a very recent clash of cultures. And... So by the, if the last of the buffalo, you know, was sort of driven extinct by the U.S. cavalry, and incidentally that did not occur kind of gently over the course of the 100-year expansion of the American frontier. It occurred in seven years as direct U.S. policy led by the Civil War General Philip Sheridan to destroy the commissary of the Great Plains culture. And so from the height of the populations of the American bison to their reduction to a zoological curiosity it was only seven years. And in fact, when the last of the buffalo was gone and the last of the native tribes were reduced to the reservations, Sheraton actually suggested to the U.S. Congress that a commemorative medal be minted that would have on the one side of it a dead Indian, on the other side a dead buffalo. And so, you know, this is this is happening in the 1880s. So in 1902, when the Bureau of Reclamation is formed, it had a slightly different name then. Uh, this was not very far off the, 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 the years of the early settlement of the American West, and the Bureau of Reclamation was given um, control over all water issues, and many of the individuals who worked within it, and certainly the, the belief system that it reflected, or, or the overall ideology, was very much that of the Mormon people. And again, this is not to say anything to denigrate the Mormon faith. It simply it reflected that overall dream of Zion, the, the idea that we could we could um, green the desert. And in, in a sense, it's the, the Mormon dream of Zion was a religious um, um, aspiration um, as much as a practical goal. With the forming of the Bureau of Reclamation, 
the greening of the desert in some sense became national policy. And as I said, because the rain did not suddenly materialize in the wake of the passing of the farmers, um, you had to bring the water to the land. And the answer, of course, were dams. So it's fascinating. I mean, uh, in 1900, again, you know, it's it's great to think of how recently this is. I mean, in 1900, um, you know, it's you know, it's 16 years before the birth of my father, kind of thing. And in 1900, there was not a single dam anywhere in the world higher than 15 meters. And you know, 50 years later, um, three years before I was born. There were, well, there were well over 5,000 dams, and today there are 800,000 dams worldwide, 40,000 of which are taller than 15 meters, uh, 1,200 dams in California alone, and, and 50,000 throughout the United States. And, you know, the, the, the ultimate and the, and the symbol of all this um, remarkable ability, of course, was the, the dam that was built at the height of the American Depression, um, the dam that would become the most iconic in the world, and this, of course, was the Hoover Dam. Uh, and, you know, if anyone has had the opportunity, I'm sure most people um, in, in the Utah area certainly in the Amer- have had a chance to, to travel and, and cross the Hoover Dam, and you have to admit it's probably the most beautiful man-made structure that I've, I've certainly ever held. It's, it's got this kind of um, grace to it that defies the scale of its construction. I mean, nothing like that had ever been built before. Just the coffer dam that was built to um, hold back, divert the water so that you could build the main dam would have been the world's greatest dam had it been left um, erect in the wake of the construction of the Hoover. I mean, in the Hoover Dam, it's got 66 million tons of concrete, and nobody, nobody had ever built anything like that before. And a lot of the characters who who built it um, were these kind of road builders from the Utah area, uh, many of whom would go on to to establish some of the great construction companies, Bechtel, Morrison, Knudsen, because this was sort of the granddaddy of all engineering challenges. Because, for example, something as simple as this, people forget that you know, 66 million tons of concrete um, creates so much weight and pressure that it's impossible to set. So it would, would have taken 125 years for the concrete alone to cure uh, in that dam. So they had to invent something. And what they decided to do, completely from the seat of their pants, was to essentially uh, transform the whole dam into, in a sense, almost like a refrigerator, because they had to lace that concrete with so much um, refrigerant and cooling coils that you could have, in fact, built a massive meatpacking refrigerating pa- uh, plant that would have stretched just with the coils found within that dam all the way from the site of the dam near Las Vegas all the way to San Diego. And so they built this extraordinary um, 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 structure, and it became the symbol of America's revitalization and the potential of, of the American dream even to endure something as economically traumatic as a depression. The problem was, um, the problem was, beyond the anticipation of the people who built the dam, and, and there were really two problems with the Colorado River. Uh, first of all, you know, the old adage of the river, the American Nile, uh, and it gets its name because of this, of course, the River of Red, um, is that it was too thick to drink and too thin to plow. And the Colorado, which is not our largest river, either in terms of length or in terms of volume, 
Um, of course, the, both the Rio Grande and, and the Columbia, and certainly the Mississippi, are larger rivers. But the, 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 it flows through this sort of iconic American desert. And in doing so, of course, it drains largely through flash floods uh, an enormous area of land and accumulates an enormous amount of, of silt and debris in the water. I mean, roughly 500,000 tons of silt go down um, past any one spot in the pre-dam era of the Colorado in a single day. And that translates to about 200 million tons a year. Now, what's 200 million tons of, of silt and sand suspended in water? Well, if you could filter it out, um, that would imply, you know, 100 freight trains, each of 100 cars, each carrying 200,000 pounds of dirt. So it's an enormous amount of, of, of dirt coming down suspended in the water. And, of course, the minute that you build the dam, that that siltation um, percolates out and slowly accumulates. And so the answer becomes, uh, rather than to allow your reservoir to fill up, you have to build more dams. And and so that began a kind of chain reaction of dam building on the Colorado. The second big problem um, with our, our estimates in the 1920s is that you know in 1922 when the Great Colorado Compact was founded, one of the big questions, of course, is that, is the state. I mean, the river flows through many different states, and who actually owned the river water? I mean, that was a tricky thing because in old English law, which we had followed in the settlement of the eastern colonies, the original colonies of the country, uh, there was something known as the Riparian Doctrine, which basically said that. That you hadn't, you were free to take water from a, uh, a river, provided you did not um, either damage it or impede your neighbor's ability downstream to draw water for his farm, and that was kind of old English law um, that was codified in the American East. But in a pivotal Supreme Court state decision in Colorado, uh, it was decided that in fact you could own water, and it, it sort of created a kind of who gets there first wins. Um, of things in the American West, and this sort of became uh, the challenge as a, a portion, the percentage of the water flow of the Colorado amongst the states of the upper basin and the lower basin, and they came together in 1922 to do this. Now, the problem was that, again, beyond the um, uh, understanding of anyone who cut that deal, is it turns out the 1920s were a rather wet decade. And the estimate then was that the river contained about 16 million, 16 and a half million acre feet of water. But it turns out, as I said, that was a rather wet decade. And now the flow of the river is something more like 13.5 million, and that would be optimistic. Secondly, they had no, uh, because they had never built a dam the size of the Hoover or the Glen Canyon Dam that followed in 1963. They had no idea that these massive reservoirs that we call lakes, but they're just dam reservoirs, Powell and behind the Glen Canyon Dam and Mead behind the um, Hoover Dam, that these reservoirs are creating huge surface areas in the desert sun, and that as much as 2 million acre feet of water evaporate from those reservoirs every year. And so what this meant is that the apportionment of the water uh, was really an apportionment of water that really didn't exist um, to apportion in, to some extent. 
And and so as a result of that, you have this situation that now exasperated by what most people think of the impacts of climate change. We have situations where we have had a couple of wet years over the last um, few years, but in general, the trend has been um, toward what we've been calling drought, but what we might be actually witnessing, as many climatologists um, suggest, is in fact a return to a more typical moisture regime in the American Southwest. And meanwhile, as you suggested at the beginning of our conversation, we've created a situation where 30 million American people depend on the water of, of the Colorado. You know, it supplies half the water of L.A., San Diego, Phoenix, virtually all the power of of Las Vegas, and and you know the it's not just those cities of the American Southwest because virtually ninety percent of all our winter vegetables for the entire country zucchini, broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, spinach, squash, you name it, um, are, are grown within by you know either in the sands of the um, Zuma or in and around the. The Colorado, drawing on water from the Colorado. So, you know, any of us who have salad from Chicago to Memphis to Miami to Maine uh, in, in any of the winter months of the year are almost drinking from the Colorado every every day of our lives. So the fate of the Colorado is something that really um, concerns all of us. We're talking with uh, Wade Davis, who is National Geographic Explorer in Residence, author of, of uh, 15 books, including the, the international bestseller Serpent and the Rainbow. We're talking about his book, River Notes, A Natural and Human History of the Colorado. And uh, this ties into a concern that we have worldwide, the, uh, the future of, of water with a growing population. Uh, it's writ large in a kind of a smaller population scale in the dry west here with the Colorado River and some 30 uh, million people relying on, on the water. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, more with Wade Davis and the Colorado River. You're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. More following the break. Did you know that there is a shortage of special education teachers in Utah? Based on the Bell School District Superintendent Survey, there is a greater need for teachers of young children with severe disabilities and mild-moderate disabilities from preschool through high school than teachers in any other field. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2. Introducing Fiesel, Walnut Torpedoes, and Kalamata Olive Torpedoes. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Colorado River. It's the most dammed river. It's America's Nile. It's what it's been called. Uh, some 30 million people depend on the river for uh, food, for water, for electricity. 
And uh, Wade Davis recently took a trip down the the river uh, for a film. He put together a book called River Notes, A Natural and Human History of the Colorado River. We're talking about it on the program today. You're welcome to join this conversation. I'd love to get your Colorado River experience, your thoughts, 1-800-826-1495, or email is upraxis at gmail.com. You can also comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Wade Davis will be in uh, in Ogden, in Utah, on Thursday. And I found this information on uh, Pinterest. Um, don't often go to Pinterest, but I found this uh, for the Ogden School Foundation. They're presenting their uh, 2013 fall author event, and of course the uh, speaker will be Wade Davis. Here's their itinerary, and this is happening at the Ogden Eccles Conference Center. 5.30 in the afternoon, social and book sale, 6.30 p.m. dinner, 7.30 p.m. author presentation by Wade Davis, 8.45 p.m. book signing. That is on Thursday in Ogden. Wade Davis is with us. He is a National Geographic explorer and residence author of uh, several books, including an international bestseller, Serpent in the Rainbow, and of course the book we're talking about today, River Notes, A Natural and Human History of the Colorado. Wade Davis, we were talking uh, before uh, about the fact that uh, Colorado River is necessary for life for a lot of people, some 30 million people in cities in a very dry place and is therefore indicative of, of maybe some coming problems and challenges worldwide. What are your thoughts are on the sustainability of, of, of this? It seems like Colorado River is just pressed to its maximum. In fact, the end of the river, as is, doesn't reach the, uh, the sea. Yeah, one of the, um, one of the I think, unexpected um, parts of my book uh, is that it ends on a very optimistic note, and and because of something that I had no idea about when I first went down the river. You know, we all share this kind of urban myth, Tom, that the reason the the river is so diverted, so cannibalized, if you will, is so that Vegas can have fountains and we can have golf courses in Phoenix and uh, oh, swimming pools in Los Angeles. And so we tend to think of the um, the, the, the use of this water as being somewhat flagrant or, or pointless or, or frivolous, perhaps. Well, this is actually not the case. All domestic uses of Colorado River water, including all those purposes that I just mentioned, um, consumes only about 600,000 acre-feet a year. It turns out that the vast percentage of the diversion of the Colorado goes for a single purpose, and that's to grow either alfalfa or cattle, um, in an environment where really neither sh- deserves to be or should be. I mean, in other words, we're really what we're, whether we like it or not, what we're really in effect doing is supporting um, a ranching lifestyle, extremely rich in nostalgia, and uh, a clear part of the fabric of American heritage. But but unfortunately, um, in, at least in ecological terms, um, highly inefficient. So, for example, the Bureau of Land Management. Um, which has about 350 million acres of land in the American West under um, its control, licenses out for grazing roughly 250 million acres of that of that um, area. That's a huge amount of land, but all of that land produces less than 10% of America's cattle production. You know, the, most of our meat is in fact produced in places like Florida or in in, in lots in Virginia, and. So in order to produce that relatively small percentage of American beef production, we are diverting the the waters of the American West. And curiously, 
did some some rough um, calculations, it turns out that the entire delta of the Colorado, which of course now is just a, um, a, 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 a desert sand. I mean, it you know the, the river is a shadow in the sand. It, it's reduced to a toxic trickle. Um, moving through the delta and disappearing before the river reaches the sea, that entire delta could be replenished with the amount of water that goes to feed roughly one-third of one percent of America's beef production. And the amazing thing about the delta is that it's proven to be um, incredibly resilient. Um, you know, During the uh, 1970s, one part of the original deal that was struck to apportion water uh, to the states of the upper and the lower basin, all, also, of course, included a, a diversion of roughly one million acre feet a year to Mexico as part of the agreement, because, of course, the delta is in Mexican territory. And by the time the Mexicans were getting that water in the early 1970s, it had been sort of re- recycled so many times through the, the soils through irrigation that it was so saline that it was you know, if anything, it was toxic to the fields of the, of the Mexican farmers. And when Mexico um, uh, discovered oil, they used that as leverage to encourage the American government to build uh, and desalinate, build a desalination plant to desalinate that water that was being diverted to Mexico, which is what President Nixon did in um, the 1970s. And for any number of reasons, that desalination plant at Yuma which never reached its um, n- never reached its capacity and and was very seldom used, um, but as part of the original agreement, um, it, it was agreed to divert a certain amount of water around that desalination plant away from Mexico, brackish as it was, and simply dumped into what remained of the um, the Colorado Delta. Now you have to remember that during the time of Al- um, Aldo Leopold. When he and his brother took a canoe trip through the Colorado Delta in the 1920s, 20s, again, well within the lifetime of my father, uh, that delta was a was a lush um, um, tropical paradise uh, that hosted a, a wildlife like jaguar and had incredible uh, verdant uh, pools of fresh water where the local Cocopa Indians bathed and fished and drew their life from that delta. It was one of the greatest um, uh, sanctuaries for wildfowl in the world, and it literally was destroyed um, o- overnight as we as we quite literally turned the tap off the river in the construction of both the Hoover and later the Glen Canyon dams. As we allowed the reservoirs to fill, we simply turned off the tap of the river, and so the, the delta just dried up and, and turned to dust. But of that 50,000 acre-feet of water that, that was essentially wastewater, um, it, it, it kind of pooled in the delta, and the delta suddenly, quietly, year by year, began reborn. And there's now a kind of an oasis in the delta, um, the Cienega de Santa Clara, which is 50,000 acres of rejuvenated, spontaneously rejuvenated natural habitat. And it's shown us a remarkable thing. You know, biologists who felt that they would never see the delta bloom again are suddenly being able to study the, the, the revitalization of an entire ecosystem on a scale that's almost unprecedented. And so they've been able to do these calculations. And of course, you would never be able to replenish the entire geological area of the delta because it stretched from the Salton Sea and California all the way, you know, across a vast swath of Mexico. But the core area of what we think of as a delta uh, could be brought back to life 
with the diversion of of literally um, a trivial percentage of the overflow of the Colorado. So it really gives us a choice. You know, it's one thing, as I said earlier, to avoid judging past generations by, by their deeds that were demanded in their time. It's quite another to sit um, in one's own generation fully um, cognizant of our capacity to bring the Delta back to life in the lifetime of our children and to do nothing about it. And, you know, one of the things I find about the Colorado, Tom, so fascinating is this is this notion of it being the American icon. You know, what? it's the river that we all think about. It's it's sort of the muse of, of dam builders and poets and, and shaman and native elders and uh, ranchers and farmers from, you know, the, the entire length of it of its river and and i i think it it's fun to talk for a moment about the man whose name is so deeply associated with the um the river because as i as i came down the river for the first time you know i had the journals of john wesley powell in my in my brief in my backpack and uh he's one of the most extraordinary figures in american history and he's he's um He's somewhat overlooked, but I think it, he, he symbolizes all that's really great about America. Um, you know, he he, he 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 like all Americans, he looked to the West, and the West, of course, not only as I said, invites hyperbole; it also invites a reinvention of self. And he was one of those great Americans who grew up in the American Midwest in the in the um, middle years of the 19th century. People like John Muir and Abraham Lincoln, who they grew up poor, they they were were not formally educated, but they learned from books, which became like like kind of precious objects to them. They would walk for miles to find a library or a place where they could borrow a book. And John Wesley Powell, the first, of course, to go down the Grand Canyon, famously, he began his wanderings long before he reached Colorado. I mean, he, at 19, he walked across Wisconsin. At 20, he rode the length of the Mississippi. Then he rode at 21 the length of the Ohio and the Illinois. He just wandered um, through the American landscape of the Midwest, um, picking up knowledge from the books he could stumble upon to the scholars he encountered along the way, dropping in uh, some of these small colleges that were just growing up at the time, Oberlin, Wheaton, he was a tiny little man. He, he he was five foot six and a half, just 120 pounds when fully clothed. He was described by one contemporary as being a, a stick of beef jerky adorned by whiskers. Um, <laughs> and he weighed a lot less after the Battle of Shiloh, of course, in the Civil War, where he lost his um, his his uh, left arm, uh, a, a wound that would never really heal. He went down the canyon in constant um, pain and lived in pain all of his life. And his own brother had spent time at Andersonville in the American South, that notorious um, Confederate prison camp. And so with his somewhat psychotically deranged younger brother, uh, he headed west um, um, like so many soldiers did after the Civil War, incapable of uh, adjusting to civilian life um, and living amongst those who had never known the experience of the carnage. And his great dream was to make something of himself, and so he, 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 he really invented himself. You know, it's funny if you read those famous journals that many American families have on their shelves. Um, the prose is so florid and, and uh, full of this sort of biblical allusions, and we went down the great beyond, and so on. 
Well, the real story is that if you see Powell's original journeys, and he, he made two great expeditions to the Colorado, 1869, and then he returned more properly equipped in 1871, uh, if you read his original journals, um, they're, they're harrowing. Um, his journey was perilous, and whereas if you read in his official written, published account, when he wakes up, for example, at the mouth of Little Colorado, and he says, you know, we, we decided to go down the great unknown and so on, the truth is his original journal entry basically is, oh, my God, are we in trouble? I mean, it, you know, it's full of profanity and, and, the, and basically just short cryptic notes uh, describing their desperate situation and their desperate conditions. But when he came out of the canyon um, and, and began to write up his account for Scribner's magazine as a serial, he actually conflated both of those expeditions as if they had been one, uh, and then began to write this very kind of powerful and lyrical, um, even poetic account that, that that was clearly, in good measure, a work of fiction. But it didn't really matter because... Um, the, the American West sort of tolerated that reinvention of self. But what was really remarkable about Powell is because he was not formally educated, a totally self-made individual, he, he looked out at the landscape and saw it, not, he saw it as it was, not as it was supposed to be. And so this, after all, is 1869. In biology, the revelations of Darwin, which of course have been inspired by geology, because it was geology that gave the time frame that allowed evolutionary biology to, to work, if you will, he's acutely aware of how charged this whole issue of evolution is in the 1870s. And yet he's able to look at the, 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 the incredible strata of life of, and, and of geology in the Grand Canyon. And again, he doesn't look at it as, as, as it's supposed to be um, in an era in which clergymen said the earth was but 6,000 years old, in an incredible way, um, for a self-taught scholar, he was able to think in geological time. And I found, you know, the most amazing thing, I, in my experience going down the Grand Canyon, aside from all the fun and all the beauty and all the adventure and excitement, um, was to realize that as I looked up at those rocks, I mean, here I was, I've got a Harvard PhD, I'm highly educated, um, I've read all about the geological history of the canyon. I've got guides on the boat with me who can recite the um, the geological history by memory, by rote. I've got maps and grids and everything. And I still can't quite understand what this is all about. And yet here is Powell going down that canyon, um, you know, seeing it for the first time, the first European uh, team ever to see it. And he worked out a heck of a lot of it, and, and it's just unbelievable um, that that he was able to uh, do what he did. And so Powell was not only a great explorer, but he was, of course, an incredible scientist who would go on, of course, to lead both the Bureau of Ethnology, which was sort of the main anthropological arm of the Smithsonian, but also lead the um, geological survey of the country. And, and he, in his wisdom, um, you know, again, also saw the the not just you know, didn't just see the canyon as what he called the library of the gods, um, but he also saw the landscape for what it was. And there's a famous moment at an early water conference in the uh, American uh, Southwest. It was actually held in San Diego, where all the speakers and in, in it were kind of you know uh, uh, repeating the platitudes about the 
the, the vision of Zion, the, the ability to green the American West. And Powell was scheduled for a major um, address at that conference, and he, as he stormed to the podium, he threw his notes over his shoulder, and he spoke off the cuff, and he basically told all these people they were complete fools and idiots, and that that you know that the American West was not a place that would be settled by millions of people. It could be settled, but it had to be done, done so in a very judicious way because water was a finite and limited resource. And the, the fascinating thing is that Powell today is seen to be both the hero of the of the engineers um, because he did so much to bring uh, rational um, management principles. Um, to a place where he, he he knew that some farming could go on and some irrigation could be tolerated. But he's also a hero of the conservation side of things because he had the foresight and the wisdom to urge um, d- uh, discretion and, um, and, and care as we steward those lands of the American West. And the interesting thing is that, you know, years now after Powell's death, we have now... Um, placed 50,000 dams on the American landscape. We've diverted virtually every river. And yet still, if you look at the American West, west of the 100th meridian from space, you see that we've managed to bring into fertilize, into cultivation rather an area collectively perhaps the size of the um, state of Missouri. But the vast percentage of this great American desert this great part of the American um, myth and, and the, in, in, in many ways the, the place where we can always, as Roosevelt said, experience the whispered messages of our wild landscape, uh, the vast percentage of it remains completely untamed, uh, not under um, cultivation, uh, and yet we have compromised all of our wild rivers. And I think that's why uh, everybody is drawn to the sort of the story, the saga the lessons of the Colorado, because they speak to a, a, a bigger issue, which is the fact that we really do live on a water planet. Um, you know, I find it fascinating that we, we will spend um, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, to send probes into space to try to prove whether or not water existed on Mars, for example. But at the same time, we will spend millions and billions of dollars on industrial projects, both on our oceans and on our land, that compromise the the very water that makes this planet a blue planet. You know, there's roughly 1.4 billion cubic kilometers of water on Earth, um, but of course most of that is too saline to drink, and of the 2.5% of that that is fresh, uh, two-thirds of it is still trapped in sedimentary rock or for the moment at least trapped in ice on the glacial ice caps of um, Antarctica and the high Arctic. So if you think about it this way, Tom, if you took all the water uh, on the Earth and 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 put and it was the equivalent of say a, 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 a five liter or roughly a gallon a gas jar, um, what's available to, for us to drink would not hardly fill a t- single teaspoon. So if you think of a gallon of water in your hand when you go camping, um, that's the water of the world. What we actually have available as fresh water would not fill a teaspoon, and of that limited amount of water, we squander 80% of that. So, you know, know, four-fifths of the water on that teaspoon we use for industrial agriculture, 
which is too often, you know, a, a kind of a fancy term for what really is a process, which means that we're growing crops where such plants really were not to be. You know, mm. I mean, you know, the, the idea that we're growing, you know, rice in 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 in, in America or, or cotton throughout the the deserts of the American West. I mean, you, you're gonna you're gonna get um, a crop of cotton, but at pretty um, high cost to the environment. And, you know, given the availability of cotton from around the world, there's probably better things we can do with that landscape. And uh, we uh, will have to leave it there, out of time. The, the book's very interesting. It's uh, River Notes, A Natural and Human History of the Colorado. Wade Davis is the author. He's author of uh, several books, um, including international bestsellers. Uh, he is exploring residence at National Geographic, and he's coming to Utah. Uh, here's the details on his event. Ogden School Foundation is presenting their 2013 Fall Author Event. That's at the Ogden Eccles Conference Center. And it's a Thursday afternoon and evening, featuring, of course, Wade Davis. 5.30 in the afternoon social and book sale, 6.30 p.m. dinner, 7.30 p.m. author presentation, 8.45 book signing. And uh, that's at the Ogden Eccles uh, Center. Wade Davis, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Tom. And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to talk about wolves in Yellowstone and in the West. It's been almost 20 years since wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park and parks of Idaho, uh, parts of Idaho. Um, and so fast forward uh, some 20 years. Uh, the film is called Return of the Wolves, the Next Chapter. That'll be premiering on KUED and then later on nationally. And we'll be talking with the filmmaker John Howe and with you as well about wolves in the West. For uh, producers... Uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. On November 15th, our nation celebrates America Recycles Day. While the day itself tends to focus on human recycling activity, I thought we should also give a nod to nature's recyclers. Worms, maggots, fungi, beetles, and bacteria. It sounds like a list of leftover Halloween horrors. But in reality, we should be more afraid of what our world would look like without these creepy crawlies. For these are nature's recyclers. Scientists call these organisms saprophytes, And as important as their role in life is, they are more likely to evoke a shudder than any feeling of gratitude. What decomposers actually do is break dead things down into smaller and smaller pieces until all that is left are the basic molecular components that make up all living things, such as nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, and potassium. Once broken down, this material is then free to be taken up again by plants and animals that use them to live and grow. This cycle of nutrients is vital to life on Earth, and our saprophytic friends make it all possible. While decomposition would occur even without the help of decomposers, it would take much, much longer. In some landfills, newspapers have been unearthed that are more than 20 years old and still quite readable. This is because landfills often create anaerobic environments where oxygen-loving insects, fungi, and bacteria cannot live and therefore cannot aid decomposition. If without decomposers a newspaper can last 20 years, what would happen to much larger and hardier items such as tree trunks and roadkill? I shudder to think about it. 
Did you know that the U.S. throws more than 33 million tons of food waste into landfills each year? This organic material goes to waste there, taking up valuable space and taking longer than normal to break down. So this year, celebrate America Recycles Day by employing some of nature's recyclers in your yard. Consider starting a compost pile where your fall leaves and food scraps can get broken down into nutrient-rich, all-natural fertilizer for next year's garden. For composting tips and more information about nature's recyclers, visit Wild About Utah online at www.wildaboututah.org. Thank you to the Rocky Mountain Power Foundation for supporting the research and development of this topic. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Beehive Grill, 255 South Main in Logan, now serving breakfast, 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., seven days a week, offering French toast, pancakes, and waffles, omelets, biscuits and gravy, and Monte Cristo sandwiches. Private room available for booking. Information online at beehivegrill.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. afternoon, two Mormon missionaries visited the comedian Julia Sweeney. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, well, please, come in. And they looked really happy because I don't think this happens to them all that often. I'm Guy Raz. Faith, belief, and doubt. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.